You're listening to Life and Leadership, A Conscious Journey, the podcast that shares wisdom and strength. Join your host, Dr. Michelle St. Jane's weekly conversation on how to have a positive impact for people, planet, and the wider world. If you want to live a life of intention, be proactive with your time, and bring your vision for the future to life one today at a time, you are in the right place at the right time. Let's get started. Bermuda raises and hosts a cornucopia of intellectual capital and an agglomeration of talent, according to J.D. Cummings. Within her shores, it's evidenced by the success of the financial economy. J.D. Cummings, or John David Cummings, is an American business economist. He currently chairs the Joseph E. Botner Risk Management and Insurance at Temple University. The 219 Insurance Fact Book writes that of the top 10 countries, Bermuda ranked number one for both U.S. reinsurance premiums ceded to unaffiliated offshore reassurance, that being over $10 million, and for affiliate offshore reinsurers, that being nearly $25 million. Where did we begin? The Bermuda market started in 1947 when American CV star chose Bermuda as part of the global insurance and investment portfolio to provide property and casualty insurance solutions to business and industry. Insurance development has accelerated during the 1960s with the introduction of innovative risk financing solutions, that being the captive insurance industry, introduced to Bermuda by Fred Rice. We celebrate the 60th anniversary in 2022. We are talking about exchange-traded catastrophe options, and this market has continued to grow. In the 1980s, Bermuda was by far the world's leading captive domicile, and in the mid-1980s, Bermuda started to play a broader role in the world's insurance and reinsurance markets. J.D. Cummings highlighted one of Bermuda's advantages as the economies of agglomeration, as I said earlier, for insurance, reinsurance, and the captive industries. Bermuda was responding to mega catastrophes providing capacity for supply. Insurers are heavily dependent on global reinsurance markets to enable them to provide adequate primary market coverage. Considerable progress has been made in improving risk and exposure and capital allocation, but we still need reinsurance for natural and man-made catastrophes. After all, it's a globalizing world. And the transformation of communication and transportation technology continues to shrink time and space. To place your risk in the market, you'll need a brokerage firm. Bermuda's resident human ingenuity, I have the opportunity of interviewing one of the key players in the market, which has matured and developed over the years. Joe Rigo, president at Aon Bermuda. Aon is a leading global professional services firm providing a broad range of risk solutions in over 120 countries. After all, we are in the business of the known and the unknown. When it comes to life and leadership, Joe has been at the intersecting terrains of realism, relying on problem-solving approaches in his life and leadership. Joe was also an eyewitness to 911 in the aftermath. Rated by the Insurance Factbook in 2019 as the number one costliest terrorist act for insured property losses, I appreciate Joe's willingness to share what he saw on September the 11th as it happened and his journey out of New York. Thank you for joining me. Thank you. Glad you could join me today. And I would really appreciate you sharing with my audience how your career has evolved. Again, thank you for having me. And I'm glad to be able to participate. I came into the insurance industry actually prior to even completing college. 
I attended Saltis, graduated from Saltis, and went to Bermuda College for a year. Then after that, transferred to Adelphi University in Long Island, New York. And after less than a year, I decided that I should probably just take some time and reevaluate. As many people do, you know, take a gap year, end up being a gap two years. And I came back and I did a number of odd jobs before landing my first insurance employment with a company called Contental Re. And I spent a year working there in a fairly low-level processing type of job, but had enough experience with it to know that the insurance business to me seemed like a good career choice. So I, I ended up going back to university, finishing my degree, a degree in economics, and came out and was able to get a job with AIG, as many of my era did back in the day. And this is all predate the companies like Ace and Excel. Bermuda was very much a captive insurance market, a sort of specialty niche reinsurance market. I did two years at AIG, essentially involved with their captive fronting program. After about two years, I had an opportunity to join a company called Alexander & Alexander. And this was just as Ace Insurance had already started. So they were just getting up and running and coincided with the creation of Excel. So it was sort of an exciting time, an uncertain time. And Alexander was a broking firm. They also did captive management. And I joined the broking side of the firm. And uh, again, it was right at the start of Ace and Excel. It was a very exciting, very dynamic time. It really was the beginning of the change of the landscape of insurance and reinsurance in Bermuda. And basically the beginning of Bermuda evolving into to a major commercial and reinsurance catastrophe center for large account business. And so uh, I've been with what is now Aon, purchased a and in uh, acquired a and in 1997. And so I've been continuously with the company since 1986. I uh, have done just over 35 years. I've always been involved in the broking side and through various evolutions. And I had a great mentor when I first joined the company who retired after five years. And I was given the opportunity to run the broking side of the business. And as we've grown, as we've evolved, and as we've gone through acquisitions, I've been fortunate to maintain that position. And so I joke with people sometimes that I really haven't had a promotion in 30 years. But at the same time, it's been great to be able to evolve with the company. I feel it's like a tide that rises. So my career has risen with the rise of the insurance, particularly the commercial insurance market in Bermuda. So I've been very fortunate to be able to do this job, to grow with this job, and to be involved with this company for now over 35 years. Absolutely. And I've known you for a few decades and I really can see that you're such a good fit because you're in the work of relationships and you're taking on the burden of insecurity and your work took you to that intersection of fields between problem solving, problem fixing. So you've kind of been like a risk management, risk transfer strategist. <laughs> and clearly it was by choice. You were very directed in how you've done this, which is amazing. And of course, Bermuda has positioned itself as an innovation sector in terms of developing and refining products and services as clients have needed them. So this is a wonderful peek into risk escapes and risk transfers. And let's face it, I mean, you know, when I look back, because I was broking I had a short career in broking and I loved it actually because I like people and I like helping. But when I look back, oh yeah, I was at the end of the 1980s and we had, you know, the formation of ACE and Excel in 85 and 86, which is when your career really took off. And then we had all these capacity shortages with the hurricanes and the first bombing of the World Trade Center in 1993 and the managing of risk burden for decades. Oh, wow. <laughs> What's really been amazing is, is to watch how Bermuda as a marketplace has really evolved into a key marketplace for those catastrophe risk transfer needs, whether it be insurance or reinsurance. And as we've gone through various cycles and we've seen Bermuda be able to respond to whether they be natural catastrophes, so sort of like Hurricane Andrew in the early 1990s, whether it be the events like the World Trade Center that spawned the class of 2001, as it was known, and we had something like 10 billion of capital come into the market. And to watch how Bermuda has risen and has evolved 
involved and has developed new product and innovations in response to those changing needs and those expanding needs. And that goes on today. I started off as a sort of casualty broker because that was the need at the time and that was the opportunity at the time in the mid 80s. But today we have such a diverse business. We have property, casualty, financial lines, professional lines. We have digital risk opportunities. We've got cyber. We've got a spectrum of business and intellectual property that's developing and things like the climate change challenges we're facing today. And so Bermuda has really been a very responsive, innovative, optimistic market when these various challenges, these catastrophes, these emerging risk transfer needs have come to the fore. Bermuda has really stepped up and evolved and become a really a critical marketplace for the large account segment. Yeah, you're one of my most admired leaders because I had a fair whack of life and leadership myself in terms of facing catastrophes and challenges. And in fact, rated by the Insurance Fact Book 2019 of the top 10 costliest catastrophes, September the 11th is number four. And Joe, you were there. Could you share with us about that day? How did it start? With a cup of coffee? Sure. I would start by saying that, yes, you know, I was there and it was a horrific experience, but I was one of the fortunate ones because I survived it. When I think about it, I think about all those, particularly the colleagues that I knew, some of whom I had seen the day before, some of whom were friends who did not survive. And Aon had, I think, 176 colleagues that had perished in that terrible, terrible tragedy. And so while it, it certainly had had its impact, and I do think of myself as fortunate to have survived it. So my experience was that I was attending a meeting, a large meeting, internal meeting of Aon colleagues, and it was scheduled for that day. And I had actually gone up on the Sunday beforehand so that I could spend the day before meeting with colleagues in various facets of the Aon operation there. And, you know, I'd spent the day before, and I remember the weather being very nice fall day. It was beautiful. And yes, I spent the day before meeting with various colleagues, attended a dinner that Monday night before with a number of colleagues. And just to step back a bit, the intention was that our meeting, which was an internal meeting, was to take place in the 105th floor conference room, which is where our, in the South Tower, which our offices, I don't remember all the floors, but we basically had the top, I think five or six floors of the South Tower. And the intention was that we would be meeting in that conference room. And, and essentially, as I recall it, the day before we got notified that that room had actually been double booked and the other party was a client meeting. And so we were on short notice, moved to a meeting room at the Millennium Hotel across the street. And it was not at that time, didn't seem significant. So it started that morning, the meeting started at 8.30. Yes, it started off with some, you know, we had a buffet, not, you know, just croissants and things and some coffee. And our meeting started promptly at 8.30. And we were, you know, there was a series of presentations, brief presentations being done. And I was waiting for my turn when, as I recall it again, this loud, loud bang that sounded like to me, like a large truck had a very severe backfire on the street. We were down low. We were on fourth floor conference rooms. And if you recall New York at the time in the trade center area, the buildings were quite close together. So you really didn't know, couldn't really see anything. It was enough to stop the meeting. And I recall people milling about wondering what was going on. And one of the security folks from the hotel had come up to say, but he just stay calm. We believe a small plane may have hit the World Trade Center. We're trying to find out, but just please stay put. And so we did that. We were sort of talked amongst ourselves, waiting for further information. And I guess it was something like, I can't remember exactly the time frame, 20 minutes or so later that we heard the second loud banging noise and realized that something terrible had happened. And so we were directed out of the building onto Fulton Street and in a fairly orderly manner. There was no, I wouldn't say there was any panic at that point in time. And then from there, I would say there was about 30 of us in the meeting and people went various directions. I went with some colleagues. We walked down to the South Street Seaport, which was just a couple of blocks away. You know, we sort of milled about there for a bit, not quite knowing what was going on. And then we just started walking north along the FDR. I would say we were probably a mile and a half away, walking away from the towers. And there was people lying in the street, obviously looking at the smoking buildings. And I saw the expression on people's faces all of a sudden change. And so I turned to look at the tower, and that's at the point the South Tower collapsed, which was the tower that Aon was in. I would estimate we were about a mile and a half away at that point in time. 
So it was a terrible sight. It was obviously really many ways surreal. And I think what I would say about that, being in the catastrophe business, if you will, from an insurance perspective, used to hearing about tragedies, whether they be natural catastrophes, whether they be you know, the, the Exxon Valdez, earthquakes, refinery explosions. We dealt with all that. And people always, you know, you, you hear about it, you see it on the news, but you don't really connect with it until you see something like that yourself. It just brings it home that this is not something that just happens to other people. And so it was, again, the, probably the most surreal experience of my life at that point time. And anyway, we kept walking and ended up in Midtown Manhattan a few hours later, where, strangely enough, life seemed to be almost normal, where you know, only a few miles away, this horrible tragedy happened. It was a day and we ended up meeting up with a friend of mine who worked in Midtown and we walked with thousands of people out of Manhattan over the 59th Street Bridge. And I ended up being lucky to be able to stay with him at his house on Long Island until that was a Tuesday and I was able to make it back to Bermuda on the Saturday, courtesy of Excel, who a number of their executives had been in New York at the time. And we were able to finally fly out of Westchester Airport on their company jet. Some parts of that day are so vivid, it's a little less clear, but it's one of those things that you'll never, ever forget. Absolutely. I remember being in New York City on business and in and around the World World Trade Center 10 days before. And I remember walking down the Avenue of Americas and thinking these would be corridors of hell if there was an attack here. But a lot of people don't realize there was a lot of media around terrorism and a lot of keeping it in the news. And also being in risk management by a background as well, I would look around and go, oh, this would be a really tough place to be. So Joe, as you left, were you able to reach out to your office? or your family? How did that go? Well, another aspect of this where, again, there but for the grace was very fortunate. Again, as I mentioned, they relatively last minute decision that my meeting would be moved out of Trade Center and across the street. But, you know, it wasn't that significant development that I would necessarily tell anybody. So, you know, I hadn't told my wife and I don't think I told anybody in the office. And of course, after the event, there was no cell service for several hours. And so I think the assumption was, uh, certainly was the assumption on my wife's part, and I think basically on most people in the office, that I had been in the Trade Center when the planes hit. And so there was no way at that point to contact anybody to say otherwise. And so I think that was particularly traumatic on my wife and my children were you know, relatively young at the time. I know that my wife pulled them out of school and there was just no way to know. So I couldn't contact them. I think I was able to finally get through. At some point when I got to Midtown, I was able to use a public telephone to get through and let them know that I was okay. But that would have probably been three or four hours later after the event. For me personally, I was very fortunate that that development happened, but I still think of the tragedy of the loss of life of all the people who lost their lives in that. There were close to 3,000, I think. That yes. And then, you know, of course, in particular, the colleagues that we lost, including a colleague from Bermuda who was in the meeting in that 105th floor conference room that we were displaced for. So it's one of those things that you just look back and say the randomness of life and, you know, that could have been so much different. So, and the other thing that struck me too is, again, there's no way to you know, find a silver lining in any of this, but the fact that the attacks took place at that time in the morning, you know, New York's one of those places where a lot of people have to commute long distances to get into the office. And so for a lot of folks, they're not in by nine o'clock or they're getting in or just getting off public transportation. I had several friends who would ordinarily been in the building, but the train was late or they were just getting off the ferry. And I think if that attack had been, say, a half hour later, there may have been even more tragic loss of life, which in no way diminishes what happened. But, you know, you think about those things and how it could have been different, how it could have been even worse if it had been different timing and if there had been different decisions made. So it was a horrible tragedy. It still resonates today. And, you know, I, I again, particularly for my family, what must have been going through their mind at that time in those several hours that I was not in communication, I can only imagine. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for sharing that, Joe. So in terms of like your leadership, did it change your philosophies like pre-91, post-91? Do you have any sort of clarity or wisdom to share around? 
Well, you know, I think it does change your perspective and not that it took away from how I viewed responsibility, how I viewed my career and my obligations from a working perspective, but it does make you think about the other aspects of life and, and how you prioritize your life. And so I think it gives you a little bit better appreciation of the, some of the things that we often take for granted. From a work perspective, I think Aon responded so well and, and so caringly to the families, to the victims, to the survivors. And I think that's part of the reason why I'm still here today, the reaction of Aon's leadership at that point in time to this terrible tragedy. So as I look at it, as my career has developed, and, and I've been very fortunate that I've been able to work with some great people that we've been able to recruit both from within the organization on a global basis and, and outside the organization, some, some really talented people. And we've developed a great core of professionals here. And, and I like to think that it's part of my responsibility is to help them understand the balances of life, you know, the balance between their professional responsibility and the rest of their life and the families. And so I, I try to have that perspective. And these days, I spend a great deal of my time talking with colleagues and mentoring and just trying to help them through the day-to-day -day issues and try to bring that perspective to a certain degree that, listen, what we do is very important, risk management, risk transfer. It's vital to, to global commerce, but it's only one aspect of our lives. And you have to be able to balance it against those other very important aspects of life. And so I like to think that I instill a little bit of that with the colleagues I work with. Yeah, thank you, Joe. We have something else in common. We've both been widowed, and I really appreciate you sharing your experience. Yeah, I mean, terrible coincidence, I suppose, but my wife actually passed away six years to the day after 9-11, September 11th, 2007. Again, a sudden she was quite young. 47 at the time that she passed. She had been diagnosed with terminal illness only less than a year beforehand. And again, inexplicable how that could happen to somebody so young, so healthy otherwise, and healthy lifestyle. And at that point, married for, I think, 23 years. We had young children. I say relatively young. My oldest was already in college, actually, at that point, And my youngest was just starting. And I think the greatest tragedy, obviously, the what my wife had to endure, you know, the, the suffering, the uncertainty, but also you know, the, the, for the children. I look at what they've developed into as as far as people, as professionals, and I really attribute that to you know, their mother's influence on them more than anything else. Again, I spent uh, a lot of those early days, I wasn't home that much. Business was, and the market in Bermuda was developing. We were a, a lean, lean operation. And I think back in all the, the obligations I had, and you were out to business dinners a lot, and you were traveling a lot, and it was the responsibility for really raising the kids fell on her. And she did just, just an amazing job. And I still feel for them because they lost closest friend. And you know, I just feel that when I look at the impact on them, but they've made it through they're doing great and I attribute that to to their mother's influence yes it's amazing to see how your children will turn out my children were nine months five years old and six years old and my nine month old son is the replica of his father as a father and a husband so it is amazing to see how this legacy of being a good man in family life and also in his work but I'm just so proud of him as a father and how he engages with his children interestingly enough because of course after my husband died I needed to get a career and take control of raising my kids and I was having two daughters and two sons I particularly wanted to ensure that my daughters got education and opportunities but it's wonderful to just see how he's taken this this family approach for him family is first and of course passing it when he was nine months old it, you know it's amazing to see so much of his father's values and philosophies being played out in his life so yeah it's amazing how they still come through the next generations and now I have grandchildren and I watch the grandchildren <laughs> going like my oldest grandson is an amazing musician and extremely talented and quite charismatic as well and these are legacies from his grandfather so it's wonderful to see how this plays out they're all not quite into careers and things because they range between 
23 and 18. But I watched this space with um, with much delight to see what would happen and plenty of merriment in the moment when I see these characteristics and values coming through. Yeah, and, and I totally agree. I think the thing that resonates most with me as I think about them today, and I think about them in, in the context of their mothers, that their mother would be so proud of them. And I know that would be the case. And in a strange way, I'm much closer to them now than I think I might have been because of those, you know, again, e- even with the perspective of 9-11 and trying to rebalance priorities, it, it becomes difficult because there's always that demand. And again, back in those days, it was a lot of hours, a lot of traveling, and you just couldn't be there as much as you wanted to be there. And today, you know, I think she is looking down and, and seeing not only you know, how great these kids have turned out to be, but also the relationship that exists between the three of us. I think she'd be, and I think she is very happy to see that. Well, my hats are off to you because I remember having to parent by text <laughs> and email. You know, I'd be like, okay, homework, send it through on email. Yeah, you know, yeah. Got them engaged in uh, technology really quick. If I was traveling on business, then of course it was a classic. I knew more about hotels and airports than any of the countries I got to go. Yeah. And often I was holding Europe through to California. So I only had four hours a night I could sleep and fit in the parenting around that and business trips. So hats off to you to having a quality relationship and being able to model this, but more importantly, in terms of your leadership, you've had the experience of sudden catastrophe and a slow evolving catastrophe. Really, it's very few people who've had the opportunity to walk that last mile. And I have to say, doing that with my husband was a huge investment in my well-being and my way forward to be future focused and carry out the keeping alive of his legacy and my children's. And even today in this community, every now and again, someone says, oh, how's Bobby doing? And I'm like, resting comfortably, (laughs) dealing with all those situations that are inexplicable to people who haven't been through it. So Joe, any last words? I love your approach to balancing and rebalancing and your generosity of spirit and sharing these stories of how life and leadership can take dramatic turns and we just have to cope. Yeah, that's right. I mean, we live complex lives and there's not easy decisions. You know, we have responsibilities professionally. We have responsibilities financially. We have responsibilities to our family and our friends and and ultimately to ourselves. And so as someone who's probably not that far from the end of a career, just keep reminding yourself that you've got to sort your priorities. You've got to be able to multitask. You don't necessarily have to abandon one for the other, but you have to be able to set priorities, to adjust those priorities and and ultimately figure out what the key is. Because in, in the end of the day, our time is short. You've got to have a perspective that says there is more to life than working. And sometimes I have this discussion with my kids because they're both very involved in their careers and they're very intense about them sometimes. And I admire that because that means they're hardworking and they've got a great work ethic. But there's also that other part of it where there is more to life and you should try to make sure that that balance is always there and that you're focusing as much on your personal well-being and your family and all the other joys of life as you are on your career. Thank you, Joe. I really appreciate your investment in our global community and sharing your unique contributions to life and leadership. And most importantly, let's make it a conscious journey. Dr. Michelle St. Jane is a conscious steward of meaningful leadership in the world and the wider cosmos. Tune in every Thursday for real talk around life, leadership, and your conscious journey. Be ready to create and cultivate your dreams and soul-hearted desires. Your support is valued. Please subscribe. Leave a review and a rating. But more importantly, share with your connections.